welcome to the Navit Gaming Podcast, where it is our mission to explore the business and future of video games. We bring together the industry's brightest builders, investors, and thinkers to keep a pulse on current events, dissect emerging trends and games, share lessons learned, and have a great time. This podcast is also part of Novik's growing ecosystem, which ranges from free and premium research to consulting and advisory services. For more information, visit www.novik.co. This episode is brought to you by Lakestar, one of the leading European venture capital firms. Lakestar's mission is to find, fund, and grow disruptive businesses that are enabled by technology and founded by exceptional entrepreneurs in Europe and beyond. Founded by Klaus Amels, the team's early investments include Skype, Spotify, Facebook, and Airbnb. And since raising its first fund in 2012, Lakestar now manages an aggregated volume of over 2.8 billion euros across their early and growth stage funds. The team actively advises and supports portfolio companies in marketing, recruitment, technology, product development, and regulatory insight, accompanying founders from seed to early stage, growth stage, or exit. Lakestar's games and media team has made 18 investments, including 1047 Games, Zebedee, Modulate, and Trace. If you're interested in learning more or getting in contact with the Lakestar team, simply go to lakestar.com or check out the details in the show notes. And with that, let's jump into the episode. All right, everyone, welcome to another Novik Roundtable. I'm your host, Devin Becker. And with me, I have some great panelists, as always. We've got Mario, Tammy, and Manu here. How are you guys doing today? Hello, Devin. Good. Doing great. Back from Gamescom week and... Work has hit yeah. like a tsunami. So <laughs> it also it also feels like uh, everyone everyone was on like summer or like at least the European side uh, summer vacation and people are starting to come back. Uh, so news are starting to pick up after Gamescom for sure. Yep, yep, yeah, definitely. We're gonna be heading into fall as well, of course, at some point, and then you know stuff for winter. I'm sure will be ramping up. But uh, we have we have a lot of topics covered today. A lot of stuff, as you said, the news ramping up. We have some uh, a lot of stuff like as you mentioned, Gamescom highlights. Uh, we've got some small matter news around Supercell, following up on a on a previous topic there. Uh, Epic with some revenue changes. Sony with a little bit of news on their side. Sandsoft with a new COO and Embracer with some stock uh, issues, I guess. But let's just dive into Supercell stuff real quick. Uh, yeah, so I wanted to do a quick update on Supercell Flood Rush, one of the games that they were uh, running beta, close beta on earlier in the summer. So we talked about it back in an episode in June, uh, just when they hit with uh, two betas, Flood Rush and Squad Busters. As a reminder, both games being Battle Royale, kind of build your party during the match trying to reach the final, you know, kind of very, very much Battle Royale-esque, both of them. And this week, they announced that they were canceling Flood Rush in a very Supercell-type way of celebrating killing games. Some of the, the comments that they made were, uh, you know, they identified several issues with, and pretty much they called out everything, gameplay mechanics, controls, character dynamics, um, art direction, uh, you know, the, the feedback across the board seemed to basically say, you know, that it was not worth for them uh, continuing developing the the game to really meet the Supercell standard, right? So it's it's very different standard than a lot of, of games. Like they are in this 
constant quest for finding hit games. So, you know, it's not, it was not hitting that, that bar. And, you know, they even called it out in their announcement that they would need to make huge and extensive changes to the point that it would be completely different game, which at that point, it means, you know, they're better off starting uh, a new game. So I do want to call out that this is another example of Supercell celebrating something that a lot of teams and I've been on this on this end of the of the spectrum uh, where it's very hard to kill games, cancel games, however you call it, and instead they're you know trying to celebrate the the fact of not making it feel like a bad thing to cancel a game, but really take the learnings from there. Uh, they even call it out in their in their post that ideas and insights gathered uh, while developing flawed rush can in many forms be applied to other projects and. Um, they didn't call out any specific games, but you know, even thinking about like Squad Busters, uh, that it's still in development um, is probably one of the games that will will benefit from the learnings. And uh, just to kind of close off as as a reminder, I think at this point we have two games in active dev from Supercell. We have Squad Busters and we have Clash Mini, the auto battler kind of auto chess type game. That's been in soft launch since November 2021. Uh, I was looking at their data in data.ai, and it sounds like um, they might be gearing up to either gather some more learnings or uh, launch the game because they did a big push in July as well, opening up in the UK, um, and you know they got very good traction there, over close to 200k downloads. Uh, it seems to be holding. Pretty decent DAU, but still um, revenue seems to be flattening. So we'll see where where they take Clash Mini. But um, Supercell comes with a reminder that it's always okay to cancel games. Well, I, I don't think we'll see them do that strategy of just kind of dumping a game out there again. That was that seemed to be kind of the experiment with this that also didn't seem to get the traction uh, as opposed to their two games, as you mentioned, kind of soft launch for a while here probably much more li- likely to make it out. But I just I say, I, I don't imagine we'll see anyone like just trying to copy Flood Rush either. So it's probably just kind of dead in the water. Yeah, I, I remember when we first talked about both of these games, I think it was with Tammy itself. And uh, we were kind of saying that, you know, Squad Busters is basically the same game as Flood Rush, just that Squad Busters has the, you know, the various Supercell IPs and uh, Flood Rush is, is a new IP. Um we recently released a you know strategy uh, genre report, and in that we kind of uh, Jordan, um, who's who's uh, who's a consulting partner uh, at Navic, uh, he kind of did a little piece on you know what is what are various Supercell's games missing more recently, and why trying try to like just explore like a slightly new theory for why they why they're canceling so many of their uh, soft launches, and. Um, it's not. It's maybe like not the newest insight because probably everyone in the industry feels this. But you know, um, uh, the core insight was that Supercell basically, or like a lot of their games that have gotten cancelled, have just kind of missed the essence of the genre that they are trying to you know redefine uh, in a way. And um, so for you know for Flood Rush uh, specifically, it's kind of like um. Brawl Stars meets uh, Agar.io uh, in a way, you know, and um, 
But you know what kind of makes uh, Brawl Stars great is you know the aiming and timing <laughs> of uh, of your attacks and movements and such. That's a hugely important skill. And you know just the hand eye coordination and you know deep understanding of the brawler's strengths and stuff that kind of you know uh, that kind of gives you an edge in the battle. Uh, but in agar.io you're you're like this amorphous uh, blob you know and uh, it grows larger by eating smaller blobs um but then a very very key feature in in that game is uh, the splitting or merging uh, of your blob uh, and that's like a that kind of creates like this risk reward um decision in the gameplay uh, which you know doesn't really exist in uh, in flood rush or even squad busters for for that matter so we kind of concluded in our flood rush slash squad busters analysis that basically the game missed the essence of you know both these brawl stars and agar.io it just didn't kind of come together and i don't know at least for us uh, the writing was a little bit on the wall in that report itself that you know flood rush is probably going to get cancelled and and yeah i think like what a week later it was announced um yeah and yeah maybe they learn from it and kind of reinvest into squad busters but you know i think i think the one sentence that they made at the start of the of their blog post they basically said um we need we needed to make extensive changes to the point that it would transform flood rush into something too distant from the initial vision and if both squad busters and this one are so similar in terms of gameplay you know it's it like which squad busters also need to move like very far away from its initial vision you know uh, and um uh, so yeah maybe maybe squad busters has the same fate but yeah more bullish on clash mini you know Yeah, and I think that um you know there were like some key distinctions between Flat Rush and Squad Busters where I think that uh you know potentially Squad Busters might have a a, a better shot at at surviving. Um the other thing that that as you were talking that really stands out to me is that um you know generally speaking, you know what what is Supercell trying to do is when you were saying re reinvent, reimagine core genres and bring them to broader audiences. one of the things that i yeah. i feel like you know they're really good at is creating gorgeous worlds in art you know just amazing art um for the mobile form factor and some of the games like flood rush and even everdale have been trying to challenge that established look and feel from from supercell that doesn't seem to land um as well either so uh i think that there's yeah mm. there's a lot of things that that we're going into a uh, flood rush not not having the shot at at really being a, a supercell hit i i think supercell does best when they're making small tweaks to already established genres uh like you said Tammy like bringing it to like a much bigger audience um i just hope they're not dissuaded by all of the recent game closures like you know we had rush wars heyday pop clash quest um everdale like there's really no shortage of closures and Everdale in particular was kind of a bit of a head scratcher because I thought they could you know maybe redefine the town building sim genre there um which has gone gotten quite stale but you know I I I'd rather see them create projects and you know keep iterating until something sticks and they can have a hit than you know really not try to 
um, be innovative at all. I, w- I would say that I think uh, I think saying that uh, Supercell does best when they make small tweaks to existing genres is is probably a big understatement. I think super it's like a little bit on the other end of the spectrum where Supercell basically re- redefines the genre by simplifying. You know, um, uh, like for like Clash Mini, for example, it really just takes the essence of what what makes an auto battler interesting. Uh, given that auto battlers were kind of created for you know the Dota uh, community first and not for a mobile experience um and it just takes what's interesting in that auto battle experience makes it mobile first and therefore like you know increases accessibility and such so it's some pretty like those those simplification decisions are definitely like one of the hardest decisions i think in game design just given you know um just given like you have such a strong inspiration that will keep clouding your decision making you know design decision making um so, so yeah very very hard decisions and therefore you know people who are able to pull it off can see like very good success like supercell so well sounded like based off of what you said about uh, the agar io and uh the way flood rush turned out maybe they oversimplified like overcorrected a bit into that range clash mini is actually like yeah it it does do a good job of the simplification but yeah on Floodrush, I feel they just missed features entirely. Like, it's, yeah, they just missed the things that make Brawl Stars and Agar.io great. And I'm not sure why. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah. Well, the nice thing is, of course, they're going to be able to turn those learnings into uh, things that will contribute to Squadbusters, I imagine. Uh, probably not a huge amount, right? Because they were already like had some key differences. But I think we'll we'll see potentially some changes down the road. To that game and, and hopefully a release they definitely put their stuff at soft launch for quite a while uh, so i'm looking forward to at least seeing clash mini come out at this point just because uh you know it's been a long time it's been kind of dwindling away uh, but they've mm. been improving on it right you know iterating on it and so uh i don't think that's going anywhere other than global at some point here hopefully but uh speaking of announcements uh a lot of stuff coming out of gamescom that you were just that man you yep yep um I mean, uh, yeah, to be fair, like, I was basically just stuck in a lot of meetings <laughs> during my time at Gamescom and whatever time I did kind of get to see the show floors and stuff, uh, I, I did visit. But, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, uh, thank goodness for, you know, sources like IGN and stuff who <laughs> basically kind of keep a tab on all of this. Uh, but yeah, a lot of a lot of interesting games got announced. So I'll just kind of go through this in rapid fire um, and maybe like a few comments here and there. So probably my um, probably my favorite one was, uh, you know, Black Myth uh, Wukong that we got we got to see like uh, some gameplay uh, on that. Uh, it's another like Souls-like game that's been in development for some time now, but it is looking really, really, really good. Um, and it's currently sitting at number 13 on, you know, Steam's uh, top wish listed games. But uh, beyond that, there were like a lot of other interesting games also kind of announced. One was Payday, uh, not announced, but, you know, just kind of brought up. But Payday 3, um, which is also sitting at number six on, um, you know, Steam's uh, top wish listed games. So, yeah, probably, you know, uh, maybe a good sign for uh, Embracer a little bit. Uh, Stalker 2 uh, was uh, sitting at number nine. Um, Lies of P, I actually, I, it's another source like I never knew about this game before but it's based on uh, pinocchio and also looking really really good uh, pinocchio you know uh 
uh pinocchio uh themed uh, or uh, you know uh, souls like which what well, yeah kind of like surprised me um what did like surprise me even more though was um i mean even mortal kombat 1 um you know showcase like more gameplay and such uh, at at gamescom but uh for whatever reason this seems to be like you know maybe the best at least to me like just the best mortal kombat until now maybe mk11 is is better but this one did seem really good but it is sitting like pretty low on the steam wishlist wishlist uh, charts at like number 60 um but yeah i mean the single player mode looked really really good um and yeah i've just kind of surprised why it's like so low at least on the wishlist charts um other than that um homeworld uh So yeah this is kind of big news but Homeworld is coming back after 20 years uh with Homeworld 3 um and the apart from like you know the kind of the core Homeworld experience that you know they'll be you know refining and upgrading uh they have like this one roguelike inspired RTS mode uh, and that's what uh, at least the developers are pretty excited about and marketing quite a bit um uh, one thing I'm pretty curious to see like after 20 years you know homeworld coming back will homeworld also kind of have like a baldur's gate moment <laughs> with this launch uh and it'll yeah it'll, again be pretty interesting to see again yeah homeworld potentially good news for embracer uh given everything that's happened with them if homeworld has a has a moment like that if it's a moment of of reigniting the rts genre cuz that's also one that's been kind of quite stale in the last few years So it'll be yep. it'll be interesting to see if if they can get that that big moment. I think it can also reignite a little bit of of the RTS genre. Yep, yep, yep. Totally totally fair point. Yep. Um and then yeah, this is and then like more on the I guess cross platform mobile side of things. Um one super interesting project which is maybe like competing with, you know, Blackmyth for my favorite position is NetEase's project Mugen. So, um this one I think yeah, this one was freshly announced at Gamescom and imagine like cy- like you know the cyberpunk theming uh meets um you know the genshin impact open world action rpg experience meets uh spider-man movement <laughs> and like kind of swinging around you know the city so uh so yeah the way they define it is or the way they describe the game is an op- urban open world game um and its core inspirations like i mentioned you know uh, their movements are heavily inspired character movements heavily inspired by spider-man combat and uh, environments and such heavily inspired by genshin impact the graphical uh, you know graphical fidelity and production quality uh, and themes is like heavily inspired by cyberpunk um the one why i found this like super interesting is because you know when tower of fantasy was announced um i personally felt it was kind of like you know doa because it just looked so similar to genshin impact and th- like you know why there was no clear reason for me to switch but just kind of given just, just given this more like cyberpunk you know uh cyberpunk theming and you're kind of in a real city and moving around and it's so familiar in terms of like our own daily lives it feels like very very strongly differentiated to genshin impact experience and you know um that kind of makes me pretty bullish on 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 this game um the thing that 
might like temper my bullishness is that you know whether netties can really deliver on you know gacha based rpg monetization systems uh, i don't think they have I might be wrong here. Uh, I don't know. I don't think they have like a major track record, like a proven track record with with those kind of systems. Um, the only game I was able to find that has like some, you know, some um, hints of it is maybe Onmyoji, which is an action RPG kind of similar to Honkai Impact. Um, but but yeah, I think this is probably like a big unknown, and maybe I'm wrong, and I'm missing some games of netties that you know actually do gacha based RPG monetization. But I think that'll be a pretty big unknown, um, or a pretty big um, you know thing that they need to prove out. But but yeah, finally, I guess in terms of marketing, we'll see it. They're just gonna go pretty all out on this, you know, when when it does when it is ready, similar to like Genshin, uh, and how and how uh, Honkai Star Rail also did, and it'll just be pretty pretty heavy on the brand marketing efforts, you know, huge billboards, buses with like posters of of this game on it and whatnot. So should be pretty crazy. Um, yeah, as you as you were describing it, I was googling some <clears> some good <throat> images of uh, Project Mugen, and it definitely stands out compared to Honkai and, and Genshin Impact. So I think Genshin, it, it yeah. if it has you know as you said if it if they execute on the on the gacha based mechanics in that depth, uh, I think it has a, a very strong shot at if nothing else, cannibalizing a little bit from from Genshin. I think that. Honkai has already cannibalized yep. a load from from Genshin anyway, so you know I think at at, at worst if they executed well they they can cannibalize into that market at at best it can expand the market and and just the reach of these these types of games yeah globally yeah yeah I think yeah Genshin Impact definitely needs to be ready for you know potential impact and <laughs> so so let's see what happens. Um, and then another mobile one, probably the last one. So um, Assassins, uh, so Ubisoft also kind of um, put out their first, um, you know, gameplay videos of Assassin's Creed uh, Jade. Uh, they've dropped the code name from it. So now we have the official name. To be honest, I was a little bit underwhelmed with the production quality of this. It really looked like a, you know, like a... I mean, with 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 experiences like Genshin Impact and Project Mugen kind of staring me in the face and telling me that you know they're they're going to be available soon. This game looked like you know something that was built like five seven years back, and I was really for this IP, you know, Assassin's Creed. I was really expecting more. Um, it might be an open world experience. Um, not fully sure, um, but you know. Uh, uh, IGN also kind of did like a an interview with um with with someone important from that game team and um and one red flag that kind of popped up was <clears throat> when IGN asked him like you know what's the monetization plan for this is going to be free to play or not uh, he did say yes it is going to be free to play but in terms of um how exactly that works like he he, he didn't even say like we're thinking about it and we can't reveal it but he said now we're just focused on gameplay right now. We'll figure out the monetization later. And that felt like for a free-to-play game, you know, that felt like a at least an orange flag for me. Um, so, so, yeah, a little bit disappointed with, you know, the production quality. Um, big questions on the monetization strategy with Assassin's Creed Jade. Uh, but, 
but yeah i mean it's it the gameplay did look good um for an assassin's creed game and i think they should be able to deliver on just like the core assassin's creed experience and kind of keep those that core fan base uh, pretty happy um i mean i'm a, i'm really excited about um heart of chernobyl um gsc yeah. is kind of one of my favorite underground developers i was a huge shadow of chernobyl fan that was one of the first games i ever played on steam back in 2007 um and i'm just really happy that they're going with unreal engine 5 um mm-hmm. rather than their uh, in-house engine that was used for previous soccer titles um you know those games have incredible gameplay um the survival horror elements are you know amazing but the technical glitches were enough like they were beyond kind of like Bethesda level um and uh i'm just mm-hmm. really excited to see more studios use unreal engine you know um cd project also comes to mind um they're switching to that from red engine Uh and I'm also happy to see the developers abandon uh, NFTs. There was a huge uproar in the community about um NFTs being integrated into a stalker game and mm-hmm. I feel like that's just an instance of the developer not under like knowing their fan base. You know, mm. most stalker fans are <laughs> not like the same <laughs> crossover as like NFT type gamers and um yeah, it's it's yeah. good to see a developer listening to uh, their community. Yeah, I was I was following yeah, but- I was following uh the 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 Gamescom news and uh what was also interesting to see was um I think it was from from Mobile Gamer um Neil posted some photos of the booths and just seeing very like mobile mobile centric like huge booths in a time where we feel like we're we're squeezing on on mobile and like things are tight on mobile uh and seeing just um you know <laughs> anywhere from like marble snap to netflix to i mean um hoyovers it's a, it's a huge global developer but you know just seeing like these huge uh fancy booths back um on on the floors and just like the photos of that yeah. like that's that was that was pretty pretty crazy to see especially the netflix yeah. one i think I get- like that that was like you just like It feels out of place. <laughs> <laughs> I was there. I I did see the Netflix one with you know like the ups, upside down uh, you know those creatures kind of <laughs> taking over the buildings and such. Um I I mean Hoyoverse is actually even last year's Gamescom Hoyoverse had a huge booth and you know they I guess they can kind of afford to do it now. The one that did surprise me was just like a Marvel Snap booth. So that was kind of huge and it it was also like pretty empty actually like no at least you know on the first day when I was there maybe it filled up later but that one just surprised me like you know a booth just dedicated to this one game but yeah. um yeah cuz yeah you yeah. you're right like however is in Netflix like Netflix it feels out of out of place just like more of like out of context like the the shifting the mentality I think of, like, they their... had like they were serving pizza and stuff inside that booth <laughs> so you could like get into a line and get your pizza slice and then walk out <laughs> that's 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 how to do it but yeah no but they're i mean they're building a a, a huge like publishing uh in in you know portfolio publishing portfolio so it makes sense to have kind of like the the big booth presence but yeah marvel snap yeah. single game mobile game recently gone across platform huge booth that's pretty crazy to see yeah i guess when netflix when you don't have like the hard hitting game portfolio then need need to give out the pizza <laughs> so <laughs> anyway i guess at that point they're just trying to get attention for that shift 
you know, just trying to make sure people are aware that they're moving into that space pretty heavily. And like, that's like a a signal flare basically at that point, rather than anything useful. And of course people are going to get the the free pizza, right? Take it, especially when I imagine food might be (laughs) kind of expensive there. So it's probably a a smart tactic on their part. Although the Marvel snap one does sound a little questionable for a game. That's like, if you haven't heard of it, you're probably not interested kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So, but uh, Sony actually had a couple interesting announcements that were, a little off uh, our expectations. Yeah, so uh, about a week ago, Sony made a very surprising announcement um, to, po- to purchase uh, Odyssey, who is a uh, headphone maker popular uh, among audiophiles for their unique uh, driver technology. Um, and I think this just came out of left field because there are so many other kind of gaming-first peripheral companies, like Turtle Beach, for example, comes to mind, um, that... I thought would be purchased first um, by like a Sony or a Microsoft. Uh, but, um, you know, in recent months, Odyssey has focused on their uh, gaming headphone lineup, uh, including the wireless Maxwell line for PS5 and Xbox Series X. Um, they retail for $300 and the audiophile uh, wired gaming headset, the LCD GX goes for 900, which is like twice the cost of a discless PS5. So, I, I found the acquisition to be a head scratcher because it's clear um, Sony wants to boost their hardware lineup, um, as shown by the launch of PSVR 2 and uh, the Pulse 3D uh, wireless cans that came out a few months ago. Um, but those are for a much lower price point at $100. And, you know, someone would think that um, th- there were a lot better acquisition targets um, available to Sony for their uh SIE division. Um, one theory I have is that um, a PS5 Pro bundle is in the works. Um, so PS5 Pro itself is still in rumor mode, um, but there are some rumblings that it could be released for holiday 2023. Um, and I think there's probably room for a bundle around $1,000 with like a discless version of the PS5 Pro, as well as um, a PlayStation branded Maxwell headset. Um, and, you know, a few new games like Armored Core 6, Baldur's Gate 3, Payday 3. Um, but yeah, I think it's kind of just a um, uh, price differentiation strategy that Sony is um, experimenting with. And, uh, you know, speaking on price, uh, the news broke today that um, PlayStation's uh, subscription service uh, would be increasing their uh, annual price. The essential plan is going from 60 to $80. The extra plan is going from 100 to 135 And the premium plan is going from 120 to 160 So this one is even more confusing to me because this is happening after Sony failed to convince any regulator um, to uh, have Microsoft abandon the Activision acquisition. And Microsoft's catalog um, is pretty much doubling um, in the coming months, whereas Sony, like, sure, they've acquired Bungie and a handful of other indie studios, but, um, like, I, I feel like they're not in the position to increase um, their offering, like, this fast and that dramatically. You know, 60 to 80 is, like, a 30% increase. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm wondering what you guys think about um, either announcement. Yeah, at least on the hardware part of it, uh, Odyssey's... Um... I think I kind of I didn't have exactly the same theory as yours in terms of uh, the bundle, but I mean that makes complete sense. Um, 
But but yeah, I guess for me, it was just, you know, it kind of made sense in terms of, you know, Sony essentially trying to expand, you know, its uh, various customer touch points by opening up, you know, potential new product lines that just kind of amplifies its core offering. And headphones is like pretty core to, you know, the gaming experience. So why not kind of make it a Sony one uh, instead? So, um, but yeah, I mean, I think the bundle theory also makes sense. Um, on the price increases, I don't know. Um, I would need to think about that. Um, but I don't know, maybe, maybe Tammy has some thoughts. It's uh, it's pretty it's pretty fresh news, so I'm still kind of it's a, it's a little bit of a head scratcher on on what uh what is the the driving force here for Sony specifically, um, yeah that, that that's that that's where where I'm at right now as as of the the recent news for sure. Was it was it just yeah, like I mean, a was it just like a straight price increase with no like no announcements of you know why or like additional feature sets or content and such was it just a plain we're just raising the prices or yeah the, the news broke like tw- 20 minutes before our recording so i couldn't dig into okay. it a ton but even if there are new offerings within the bundles it just strikes me as as weird weird timing um given uh, activision's about to close hmm. maybe 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 something will dig into next week yeah, I don't think it was even really like an unofficial announcement from Sony, right? It was more of like a a leak kind of announcement, and so maybe there's like a, a missing piece to it, perhaps. I guess we'll see, but uh, it does seem like a bit of a steep because I mean we know like a lot of streaming services, for example, are like increasing their prices pretty dramatically. So like everyone's kind of across the board, but for Sony to not have much new to offer with that seems like. Yeah, maybe maybe the other shoe would drop at some point here, hopefully, because otherwise it seems like they're kind of asking a lot for what they're really giving at this point, especially they're just making Microsoft look good in yeah. that respect, you know. After I, I think because Microsoft also recently changed their subscription service around the, the Xbox Gold and stuff, right? Yeah, Gold, I think, is um, no longer like included with the, uh, with the bundle. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I feel like, I guess my last thought on this is, I feel like Sony is trying to have it both ways. You know, like a printer company sells printers at a loss, but then sells the ink at like a premium. And like, okay, Sony's selling the consoles at like a slight loss, but now it's selling the accessories at a premium. It's selling the software offering at a premium. Like it feels like they're trying to extract too much, um, I think, from their user base. Uh, at the present without uh, improving the uh, offering enough to substantiate that. Especially since the exclusivity wars are kind of like somewhat over right outside of the acquisition game. So it does seem like Sony is going to be like in a little bit of trouble there without like those kind of exclusives to say like, this is why you got to stay over here. Right. So mm-hmm. I guess we'll see like, uh, the, you know, as things uh, shift towards winter, you know, see if the uh, battle's brewing between those two, if anyone has yet to choose a side because they were like waiting on PS5 stock or something back in the day. But we'll see. Speaking of revenue, though, Epic uh, continuing to play off strengths, doing some tweaks to the revenue program. Yeah, um, can keep this one pretty quick. <clears throat> so Epic uh, recently or the Epic Game Stores kind of announced a new revenue boost uh, system. Um, <clears throat> I believe it's called first run and um 
yeah, essentially the offer is, you know, people or developers who launch their games exclu- exclusively on the Epic Game Store um, will get 100% of the first six months of revenue. Uh, and then after that, it switches to the 88, 12%. Um, so, <clears throat> I mean, of course, you know, uh, the, uh, why, the why is clear. <laughs> just so that, you know, Epic does get, like, just makes it more and more attractive for developers to kind of go exclusive on uh, on the store. And therefore, like, you know, Epic increasing its uh, user base um, like that. Um, but, but yeah, it it's an interesting... I guess the question to ask is, you know, <laughs> will it really work in terms of attracting the developers? It's definitely an interesting move. The value proposition is super clear. But when I thought about it, I guess in my eyes, it's for for like really big publishers who kind of um, have high confidence that, you know, their games are going to be a success. Uh, the The biggest risk to them kind of pursuing this is basically kind of pissing off their player base that likes to stay on Steam, <laughs> you know, or like who are kind of active on Steam. And, you know, that is definitely the bigger chunk of the player base. Like that I can, I can you know, already kind of see those players just saying, why aren't you like, why, why aren't you just making it available on Steam right now? And that kind of causing uproar and, and, and things like that. But, but yeah, I think like going fully exclusive on uh, the Epic Game Store, you know, if if that that thing that point is not a risk, going fully exclusive on the Epic Game Store for the first six months for games that can keep the hype going until the Steam release, you know, I guess it's not really a risk, but it just also kind of feels weird. I, it would just be interesting to see that, you know, whether the best developers also just kind of more philosophically agree with the whole exclusive strategy. Um, I mean, most recently, or not most recently, but like, you know, since Baldur's Gate is very much in the conversation these days, um, um, the founder of Larian Studios, Sven Winke, uh, in a 2018 interview, he's, you know, he said that he's he, he's not into like doing exclusive. He, want, he Exclusive. He wants to make his game available everywhere uh you know as soon as it's ready and for that reason Baldur's Gate 3 is still not available on the Epic Game Store <laughs> you know that's <laughs> like uh so uh so yeah so it's yeah it'll just be interesting to see whether like you know the really big developers more philosophically also kind of agree with this but but yeah the biggest risk is just pissing off the your player base that in, that, that lives on Steam um i guess the the place where it maybe gets a little bit more risky are maybe for developers who are just kind of flying blind a little bit in terms of like potential, you know, launch performance. As soon as like you do something on, you want to like, when you launch, you basically want to like, you know, um, make the most of the hype uh, that would be kind of attached with that launch. But if you go live on uh, Epic Game Store exclusive, which definitely has like a lower, you know, um, potential buy- a buyer base than than steam um then yeah word gets out and by the time you release on steam you know you've just lost that upside really uh so so yeah but yeah maybe you know maybe they end up just deciding well i mean a 12 percent hit you know for six months maybe the catching the hype is actually just worth kind of taking that hit and you know therefore the first run program doesn't really see any success but but yeah i guess yeah for me 
in general the whole revenue this whole you know first run idea it's a it's a great idea and it's a de- it's definitely um you know um it's something it's basically epic kind of needs to come up with these ideas to kind of get a leg up on steam eventually in the long term um <clears throat> but but yeah the reality also is you know in 2022 epic game store its peak dau was at around 35 million steam's peak concurrence in jan 23 2023 so this is dau versus concurrence steam's peak concurrence for 35 million in in uh, jan 2023 so like that just i mean steam just has such a huge scale advantage uh, and still but egs is also definitely catching up But yeah, um I don't know what what do you guys think in terms of a good strategy for developers over here? Yeah, I mean, my one sentence thought is if it didn't make sense for a developer to go to Epic for a 12% cut, they're still not going to do it for a 0%. Um they yeah. value engagement um those sorts of developers that value engagement more so than preserving their margins. I think it seems like an obvious thing for web3 games to choose though. considering they can't go over to steam anyways right like that's kind of an easy win uh i, I mean i doubt that though they were super concerned about that anyways but it seems like a e- easy choice there but it yeah. is interesting like looking at the sources of revenue for both companies in the sense that like um you know uh valve is is primarily focused on a lot of the the steam oriented stuff uh not not making games so much maybe updating them occasionally things like that uh whereas epic while they've got games like you know Fortnite and things like that they also technically are making money off of games that are on steam in the terms of unreal engine which you mentioned earlier mm-hmm. mario so there is a revenue source even coming in a way through through the steam platform so a game that's in the unreal engine is doing well on steam that also benefits them as a company so like they're not in the worst position to try and like continue to edge like you know margin like people away from steam but uh, as you said like it's not a huge nudge for people that actually care that much and it's more just like people that are like willing to take the risk anyways are just going to benefit probably like the it's the it's i don't think it's going to change who does it it's just going to be like hey some people will benefit a little bit more and be a little more excited about uh, an epic store launch but i don't know i mean I'm sure you all can remember like you know Steam back in the day just being basically a way to download Half-Life 2. So you never know like this stuff mm-hmm. comes a long way. Uh but as you said a lot of traction for for Steam. Although you got to keep in mind those concurrents probably don't like necessarily mean they were playing a game. It just they have Steam open, but who doesn't just leave it open, right? Like unless you're trying to like stop it from downloading things. So Uh, I don't think people are doing that quite the same with Epic Store yet. So the the same point just exists for DAU also, right? Like just a login to the Epic Game Store would be counted as a DAU. But but uh, no, what I was gonna say from like the developer point of view, um, there's there's this piece of um, I feel like a lot of teams right now are just really trying to figure out creative strategies for expanding their distribution, which means that you know. news like this of hey epic is going to give higher ref share like 90 10 if you go exclusively i think for some teams it's worth the shot because if it's less competitive even even if um you know the audience itself is smaller like your your tem uh is smaller going on epic first if the chance of um reaching more of that audience is higher and you know on top of that getting a higher rev share off of that i think for some teams it's going to be worth experimenting and seeing if if they can actually 
you know, have a better outcome because ultimately, you know, steam is, is super competitive. It's, it's, you know, it takes a lot at this point to really gather the hype uh, on steam and, you know, really get your wishlist, wishlist counts up. And, you know, it, it takes a lot of effort from teams as well. So I think it's, it's, you know, it, there, there's a pros and cons that each team has to evaluate based on on their own capabilities and confidence on whether they could even get the, the visibility um, on Steam, even when they're a big game or a big team versus, you know, taking a shot at uh, Epic Games and see if, if they can find early success there instead. I guess what you're trying to say is like, um, if the revenue volume, because, you know, there's more... Because the user base on the Epic Game Store is more of a blue ocean to capture, just given like the game count available. Yeah, if you can, um, if you can capture more of yeah. their their smaller audience, like it, it's, I think it is like the equation, right? Of of, uh, you know how, yeah, how much, how how elastic is that equation in terms of uh, them being able to move the needle on conversions, being with a smaller audience versus a more competitive, bigger audience. But yeah, I guess even <clears throat> even in that case, they'll ultimately the I mean yeah the Excel sheet that is created internally will essentially need to have a case too, which is well okay. Uh, what if we did go with the twelve percent cut for the six months? But you know, there's this potential huge team audience also, and put like a super low conversion on that. You know, worst case scenario, what would that kind of uh, result in? But yeah, I mean that's an interesting idea for sure. Um, Definitely starting to feel like a uh, iOS versus Android sort of thing, right? Where so it might even be where some genres do better on one or the other. Whereas, like you, you, you see on iOS when you, a lot of times when you look at the the revenue, it's like there's maybe less people playing on iOS, but big, bigger spenders, uh, and then maybe the, the the inverse for that for Android, depending on the game and the genre, right, and the demographics and and all that. But I don't I don't know if we're really quite there. Yet, in terms of like both of them being big enough to really kind of compete in that way, but it is starting to trend that way. But it's nice to have, right? Like to have the choice there, so it's not a monopoly. Um, as much as I think we all enjoy using Steam, it's nice to actually have someone nudging them continually to to improve things. So, yep. speaking of a company needing to approve Embracer stock problems, yeah. So I think it's no surprise to anyone, but Embracer Group just continues to struggle on after each and every earnings report that they release. You know, three months ago, um, they were down 40% on the news of the loss of the transformative partnership that we now know was Savvy Games Group. And then after earnings got hit again, and then now um, with their um, fiscal year 2024 Q1 earnings that came out um, a couple weeks ago, uh, the stock was down again 16% um, on the week and um, down a lot after the earnings immediately as well. Uh, and, you know, I think people have just soured on Embracer's prospects, given the bloat that's present at the company. Um, you know, CEO Lars Wingforce keeps referencing um, worsening economic conditions and a new market reality for why things have gone so poorly. But, you know, when you think about it, like we have near record low unemployment, we have pretty good global growth. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it calls into question what Embracer's prospects are if we like actually do enter a recession, um, which is why I think the company has kind of turned into like a value trap. Um, they're still projecting like 
10 billion kroner in uh, earnings uh, for the full year. And when you look at it like on a valuation basis, it's like six times their earnings um, is the company's enterprise value. So it's very, very cheap on a valuation basis. But, um, you know, I, I they just have 17,000 employees over 130 studios. And when you look at their revenue per headcount, it is significantly lower than like an EA or a Take-Two. Um, and uh, Embracer just bought, bought, bought for the last few years. In 2022, they spent um, over a billion dollars making 20 acquisitions. Um, before that, um, they spent over $3 billion in 2021 alone on a single acquisition uh, as Modi, um, which is a board game company. And like, yes, they wanted to create tangential properties to the board games um, via gaming IP. But now with projects being um, axed and canceled in studios like Campfire Cabal being closed, um, you know, I don't think that's going to happen. Like titles like um, Payday 3, Space Marine 2, Remnant 2, those are still going to be released. But the ambition part of game development for Embracer has been scaled back significantly. And like, it, it just calls into question, like all of this IP they have, like um, around all these game properties, um, around like even Lord of the Rings, um, will they be able to successfully monetize it if they aren't willing to pour the dollars into sales and marketing um, and research and development? I guess there's a little bit more... Um... I mean, given like all the, you know, restructuring, et cetera, that's happening, hopefully it kind of results in, um, you know, being able to unlock those um, eventual marketing budgets uh, for them so that they could reinvest. Um, because, I mean, you know, we, uh, like at the top of the show, we also kind of um, went through some of the announcements at Gamescom and yeah, there do seem to be like a few games uh, that, you know, uh, that are definitely quite interesting, getting some good early traction and can all be attributed back to uh, Embracer. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, yeah, this $2 billion deal, yeah, like you said, it was really, uh, you know, a transformative, could have been a transformative one for uh, them, uh, $2 billion. So, so yeah, pretty, pretty, pretty big loss. Yeah, I, I think ultimately Payday 3 is more critical to Embracer than something like Starfield is um, for Microsoft. Um, and uh, yep. it's kind of weird that a company with 130 studios and 17,000 employees has a lot riding on like just a handful of titles. But that's just the reality of it. Like they've acquired studios and headcounts, but they've done little to actually acquire useful assets. And um, it, it's just all coming uh, to bear right now. Yep. Yeah. And I, 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 yeah. I guess that there's definitely like just something to say about you know you know Pareto's principle in 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 um, you know game seeing success. You know, I, like I mean the the thing about it being a hits driven business. There's definitely like some truth to it. Um, but yeah, I think the way you put it, like you know, in terms of uh, acquiring useful assets, that's a very different question than just acquiring a large number of assets. Yeah, at 0% interest rates. Yeah. Now very different. Let's hope for everyone's sake uh, that, that you know, these games that they're riding on do well because obviously uh, if that doesn't happen, right, not only does it hurt those games, but it sounds like it might hurt like more the broader portfolio they have in terms of them being forced to look at those assets more hard 
like in terms of, oh, we've got to cut these, we've got to cut that down. We can't, you know, like the number of risks they could take diminishes as some of those fail, right? And obviously, Payday 3 is like a, is a big gamble, I think, for, for that company as well, just because like, you know, like they, they wrote like everything uh, off of Payday 2, like they, they had to pretty much cancel their other projects. So it's just, it's a rough spot to be in with a lot of games writing on sequels now in general. Like a lot of the ones even you mentioned uh, coming out of Gamescom and stuff, a lot of sequels kind of being the, the key to these games where no one's really tried to launch a lot of new IP outside of maybe the Pinocchio one, if you want to count that. So uh, it'll be interesting to see. But we, we did have an interesting changeover in leadership uh, that I think is kind of interesting in, in relation, which is uh, around Sansoft getting a new COO. Uh, yeah, so last week, or I think earlier this week, um, Sansoft uh, announced a new CEO, COO, sorry, um, Pascal Bataya from... Uh, formerly coming from Social Point. So I thought it would be interesting to dive a little bit into what Sansoft is doing, um, you know, what their strategy is, and, you know, what what their long-term vision is. Uh, Sansoft is, kind of as a, a quick overview, is another Saudi Arabia publisher making a big push to be a global player. So we've talked already in the podcast aroused uh, about Savvy Games, which is more of a holding company. So there's like some differences between how Savvy Games and um, Sansoft are even funded in, in approaching game development. But in general, they're both kind of as part of this uh, Saudi Arabia vision 2030 that they call it, whereas, um, you know, they're as a whole country, they're dedicated to the country's socioeconomic um, diversification. And they really, you know, want to find kind of growth across all industries and outside of oil. Um, so Sansoft specifically is not uh, funded publicly. They're funded by a Saudi-based family, which in some interviews, the current CEO has called them fully supportive and thinking about the long-term uh, vision of their investments. So we don't have you know precise figures on how much uh, and how deep their pockets go, but you know it's it's a very kind of interesting case of just being you know privately funded. Um, they started as a publisher focused on bringing games from you know Western markets to the MENA region, specializing in localization, culturalization, marketing, customer support. But as of 2021, they brought in a new CEO. Uh, David Fernandez, he was formerly at King.com. And with him joining, they kind of gone to this more global strategy, which I think it's, it's interesting because it's a very, you know, what they're executing is, is interesting and it's, um, you know, they're, they're making some good bets, but it feels like very building bottoms up, uh, you know, by starting with, experimenting with first party games. They have a studio in, in Rijad and they're trying to open a studio in the U S it looks like it's going to be Barcelona. They were kind of shooting wherever they can find talent, but based on, um, you know, recent COO joining, it seems like they're, they've settled in Barcelona. Probably they want to open up in, um, Japan, Korea, or China, and then open in the U S like they want a big, one big, uh, new region every year they've announced um that they're publishing 
or co-publishing with Jam City, the the latest uh, game that they've launched, uh, DC Heroes and Villains. So that's focused on publishing it in the MENA region. And they've done some small investments around like the $3 million mark uh, in some European um, teams, Tiny Digital Factory being the latest one. So there's definitely, they have kind of like these three pillars of global footprint, publishing, investments, um, and, you know, they're all interesting on their own. What really stood out to me is, you know, they their vision is like in five years, they want to be, um, you know, basically the at, at the same size and level as, as EA, Activision, Tencent, and NetEase. And, you know, the strategy that they're following doesn't quite line up with kind of that, that grand vision. Like I, it, it's kind of like a, a, a mishmash of trying smart, small to medium moves with a vision that's like an extra, extra large. Um, and it really contrasts with their, you know, the other team that I was talking about, the, the other company savvy where, you know, they have a similar vision in terms of, of goals and, you know, they went in and, and bought Scopely, which, you know, puts them at, at kind of an advantage there. And, you know, they made investments in tons of huge companies from like Nintendo to EA, I think, to a bunch of others. So um, I thought it was like, it, it's just like a very interesting uh, case of, of having like a very you know, big, big goal and in, in, in target, but, you know, what they're executing today, you know, it's, it's not a five-year thing, right. It's, it's, it would be a much, much longer time, time horizon. Um, so uh, I wanted to see if you guys had any takes or, or thoughts on overall, you know, sense of their strategy and, and, you know, their recent announcements. Yeah. I, I think like, you know, you have all of these publishers and developers chasing mobile. And I think it's, pretty clear that um, Sansoft is starting with mobile. You know, Jam City is only mobile. Um, the new COO comes from uh, a mobile background as well at, at Social Point. Um, but, you know, to your point, I, I don't know if they're kind of going about it in the right way. Like if they do have this mission in five years to become like this huge player, can you really only start with mobile assets? Like it seems like a much clearer transition like to go from console um, and then either, either acquire your way or develop your way into like mobile capabilities um, than the other way around, just because it is such a different um, user demographic. Well, um, well, kind of like checking checking this company out, I kept getting reminded of Carrie First. Like the more I read about it, I was more and more reminded of Carrie First. And I mean, just as a reminder to listeners, but Carrie First is... Um, is uh, is basically another mobile games publisher, uh, but focused on Africa and also, you know, seeing some good level of success. They've gone on to raise like over fifty million or until like a Series B and and such. I, if I'm, if I might be wrong on those numbers, but yeah, definitely raised like some significant amount. But carry first, like super secret weapon, I think is essentially their uh, localized uh, payment rails platform. I forget what the exact name is, but for a region like Africa, which first of all is double the population of MENA, um, is, I mean, you know, it 
things like credit card penetration and stuff is like super low over there. Yes, a lot of people have like mobile phones and they are like mobile savvy, but in terms of like actual, you know, localized payment uh, options, um, those they they exist, but it's not like fully integrated in the infrastructure. And Carry First has kind of built out their publishing uh, value add with that in mind from day one. Um, and therefore, like there are lots of like parallels between Carry First and India, but I just don't see those parallels with Sandsoft, Mina, and you know, uh, and Carry First and Africa, for example, like. The more I read, I just kept asking myself, like, what is the real value add that Sandsoft is kind of bringing to the table? Because, um, um, I, I mean, first of all, like, the region is like half the size of, you know, in Africa. For uh, uh, two is in terms of credit card penetration and stuff, the region is actually way ahead. So, you know, uh, like, you know, even if like they wanted to build out something similar, like, uh, like, uh, carry first there's the opportunity is quite limited because people are already kind of be, uh, are able to pay um checking their current portfolio the kinds of games so i don't know they currently have like these super random casual games that they are kind of publishing in in mina uh, but the games that actually work in that region are all mid-core like if you just look at you know the top 25 games of the past three years Almost all of them are mid-core. The only ones that are not are, you know, Roblox, but that's a phenomena. And uh, and uh, the others are like some very, very highly localized game concepts, you know, similar to uh, Teen Patti in India, which is basically India's version of poker. So, you know, like these kinds of games are popular. So, so yeah, but their current portfolio is really not even reflecting, you know, what the MENA region even likes in terms of games. and. And yeah, I just kind of fully question like this whole, you know, they make a statement about we don't localize, we culturalize. And I was really questioning like, okay, is is there really that much upside in culturalization for this region specifically? Um, even, even just take the example of language diversity, it's nowhere close to an Africa in terms of language diversity. So, you know, it... So yeah, I, I don't know. I, I just kept asking myself, like, what, what is the real value add that they're bringing to the table over here? You know, uh, of course, like they have like some understanding of the MENA region and such. And, uh, you know, they might be able to help developers, I guess, enter that market. But um, yeah, from 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 reading and, and from hearing you talk about it a little bit, like, uh, I was just thinking that one of the big pieces that both with Sandsoft and even Savvy um, what it feels like is that they're doing the MENA you know, publishing localization, culturalization, et cetera, et cetera, more as a way to justify, you know, the Saudi Arabia vision of having the industry, you know, speak to their region, but really where, you know, where the growth is and where they're going to see success. And you see it with like their, their vision is like, it's not, you know, build this amazing community of of gaming developers and players in the region. It's, you know, compete with EA and Activision, which then it, what it says is like, okay, they're trying to use their, their deep pockets 
to get into the global market, it's more of getting into uh, European, Asian, and North America markets, both from the, the development standpoint, but also the, the consumer standpoint. And they need to, to be able to secure that money. They need to have a push for also bringing the games to the MENA region, also bringing the development, uh, some of the development funds to MENA region. So I think it's it's kind of a way to justify, and, and this is just me from from reading for both Sansoft and and Savvy and seeing you know the movement of of their strategy is it feels like it's. Um, them just trying to justify, okay, we we have the Saudi Arabia money. We need to, sh- you know, please that like one priority. But really, where we're going to find growth is not here. Like where we're actually going to be able to compete in a global stage is by going everywhere else. Yeah, I mean, I I hope they like <clears throat> uh, change the messaging on their website to that soon. Because it's, uh, you know, like, uh, because right now, like, the Mina publisher, for Carry First and being an Africa publisher, it just made way more sense to me because the revenue potential ceiling for that continent is much higher because they're way, that entire continent and the people of the continent are way earlier in their digitization journey, you know. Mina doesn't feel like that. Um, There might be, like, certain countries in the Mina region that are like that. <clears throat> especially maybe in in north africa but but yeah it it just it the ceiling feels way lower and therefore you know chance of being the mina publisher yeah <laughs> you know the value add was just not clear but but yeah i, I mean what tammy you also said made sense I guess we'll see, like, there's a lot of money flowing into the MENA region, a lot of attempts to try and kind of grow that out. And I, I have a feeling either, like, we'll see, you know, a few years from now, like, wow, that was so prescient. Like, you guys really blew up that region. Like, that was a great investment. Or it's like, well, that was a nice try. Like, everyone kind of wanted to get a piece of that potential pie, but it just, it didn't really work out because that region didn't have the, the growth potential we thought it did. But we had the money at the time kind of story, it seems like. Uh, obviously, like, hard to say, right? Because uh, you know, you said there's there are some ceilings to that growth, but there also is like potential to an extent. But it's not like a U.S. trying to get into the Chinese market kind of potential. I, I think so. We'll yeah. see. Ho- hopefully, though, some money well spent, regardless, uh, because there seems to be a lot of it going on. Uh, you know, whether it be in esports or games development in general, things like that. So, hopefully, a lot yeah. good comes out of it. But we'll see. Probably not for uh, another year or two, at least. I would imagine before like you start to see that that working out or not. But uh, I wanted to thank everyone for, you know, joining, joining today, like some great topics. We have a lot of stuff to cover and like it's only limited time to do it. So definitely like trying to, you know, squeeze in some more good stuff next week as well. So thank you listener, of course, for tuning in every week here, which you hopefully do. Uh, and we'll see you all next week. If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novic.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Novic has to offer, 
make sure to check out our website, www.novic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.